Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. the dirt a podcast about archaeology anthropology and our shared human past i'm anna and i'm amber and we're back uh, it has been a busy time here at dirt headquarters amber moved to dc to start her new job and i and fell off a porch anna, uh, yeah not related to the job and i went to the bustling metropolis of sacramento to attend the annual meeting of the society of california archaeology so that was that was great. We're mixing it up a little bit. We're going to start it off this week with some shouts out. Yeah. So thank you to, well, first, thank you to all our patrons on Patreon who support us and allow us to keep doing what we do. Yeah. Sorry we, we always shout you out when people have probably already stopped listening and said Mark as played and then moved on. Sorry. That's, that's why we're doing <laughs> this differently now. You're we're learning. learning. Specifically, thank you to Chris, who uh, increased her patron level. And thank you, thank you, thank you to our new patron, Desiree. And also, big news for patrons and would-be, could-be patrons. Starting this week, there will be weekly Mm -hmm. multimedia treats for our Patreon supporters because we want to do more to express how much we love you and how happy we are to be back recording in our studios (laughs) mine will have art soon but i just got here um and this is for patrons at all levels all levels you just if you if you've got a quarter a week you can support us for a dollar a month so to get all of these neat extra treats you can join our growing group of dirt bags by going to patreon.com slash the dirt podcast to learn all about the different ways that you can support us and and we love you and thank you yeah, thank you. But not only are we back, and not only do we have all those exciting announcements for you, but we've got another special holiday episode for you this week. Woo! Happy No Roos, everyone! Yay! Yeah, so coming up this week is No Roos. Many of our listeners might know this as Persian New Year, but it's celebrated in much more of the world than Iran and the global Persian community. Mm-hmm. Noruz in Farsi means new day and corresponds to the date of the vernal equinox in the northern hemisphere. That's the day that the night and the day are of equal length. And then after that, the days finally get longer. And yeah, yeah, that's a reason to celebrate (laughs) sunshine, flowers, springtime, adjusted serotonin levels. Yes. Uh, (laughs) uh, Yes. Um, But so but what happens in Noruz for those who may not know? Well, there are all kinds of different traditions, so I just want to highlight a few of them um, that I found. So there's one. Um, there's sort of a a Noru's Santa Claus. There is it's a character a real called Hanukkah Amu. Harry. Um, <laughs> so you've got Amu or Uncle Noru's and his sidekick Haji Piruz, and they're folk char- 
characters who herald the springtime. Um, and so Uncle Nuru's hands out presents to children. He is an older man with a white beard. I did also see a lot of it that um, they both sort of blacken their faces cool. with soot. Great. The black yeah. face thing. Yep. Mm-hmm. Cool, 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 mm-hmm. cool, 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 cool. But uh, Haji Piroz is his clownish assistant, and they sing joyous songs, and, and he, uh, Haji Piroz, plays a tambourine or a drum, and they do this in city streets and squares, and, and you know, they, they're performers, so they're, they're, people give them coins and stuff. So that's fun, except for the blackface. Yeah. It's festive. <laughs> Another of these customs is spring cleaning, so dusting, repairing furniture that might be broken or needs adjustment, I guess, cleaning out your rugs. Just okay. turning the house inside out, getting okay, it ready I get for spring. It. No. I'm feeling attacked. I love cleaning. I just moved here, and I already, like, no roost could not come need- sooner. <laughs> go go outside and beat your rugs. Um, one of the most important Noru's traditions is setting the haft-seen table, which includes seven symbolic items, all starting with an S sound. This is going to be a very sibilant section. Mm. Um I do. I um, briefly a few years ago lived with a Persian roommate and she set out this table. Um, yeah, we had a, a goldfish in a bowl for a little while. Uh, mm. Oh. Oh. Mm. So the, the seven symbolic items are sabza, sprouted wheat grass, and that's for rebirth and renewal. Samanu, which is a sweet pudding for affluence and fertility. Senjed, which is a dried lotus tree fruit for love. Serke, uh, vinegar for patience and wisdom gained through aging. Sib, which is apples for health and beauty. And sumac, a crushed spice made from the berries of the sumac tree for recalling the sunrise. Isn't that nice? That is nice. Sumac's also sumac's also really good if you if you slice up some onions and then just like coat it in sumac mm-hmm. and let it marinate for a little bit. Uh, I've got like citrusy. a half kilo of sumac in my kitchen. Get some onions. It's okay. Um, <laughs> additional items on the table can include a mirror to reflect on the past year, a live goldfish in a bowl to represent new life. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> An orange in a bowl of water to symbolize the earth, decorated eggs for fertility, coins for future prosperity, and books of classical poetry and or the Quran for spirituality. So flat earthers aren't really big on the big on the table. No, they have a they have an orange slice. slice. Of banana. <laughs> I was gonna say banana slice. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> banana earthers, um, and then this one's fun. On the last Wednesday of the year, Iranians, like, I mean, not all Iranians, but just the people who are celebrating Nowruz and who do this, set up bonfires in public places. I've done it. And have you leapt over a, f- a ritual flame? Yeah, because it's like three inches tall. Oh. It's not like I a... Mean, let me have my mental okay. image. Um, Fine. And and so they, they they jump over the flames and it's thought to ensure good health for the year and they and they sing songs while they're doing it sort of like the song sort of entreats the fire to give me back my my health take away this sickly pallor give me my health again um also there's a lot of really delicious food but if you get me started on talking about food that'll be the whole episode so i won't but it's not just persian culturally 
Nowruz is observed nationally in Iran and Afghanistan, but it's also celebrated in the Balkans and Black Sea region. So Albania, Azerbaijan, Georgia, the Dagestan and Crimea regions, all those places. In the Central Asian republics, Uyghur and other Turkic communities in China, Kurdish communities in Iraq, Syria and Turkey, and by Balochi, Parsi and Pashtun communities in Pakistan and India. And diasporas of all those places all over the world. So it's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Most of the places that celebrate Nowruz are majority Muslim populations, but Nowruz isn't an Islamic holiday. Islamic New Year falls on the first day of Muharram, or is it Muharram? Muharram. Muharram. And marks the beginning of the Hijri year and creeps through the Gregorian calendar because it's a lunar calendar, so it's shorter. Nowruz, however, is the first day of the solar Hijri calendar, which is the same length as the Gregorian and it's the official calendar of Iran and Afghanistan. Nowruz is observed as a secular holiday, but it is a holy day for Zoroastrians. And it is not a coincidence that the geographical reach of Nowruz corresponds with places where Zoroastrianism was and still is practiced. And so, today, in honor of Nowruz and the very happy news that winter is ending, yeah, let's look at the origins of Zoroastrianism in the archaeological record. I am so excited about this episode. I started the script <laughs> like four months ago and still managed to not get it done in time. <laughs> because I'm so excited. Hello, and welcome to this week-long episode of The Dirt. Oh. So, as with the origins of anything else we could look at, the beginning of Zoroastrianism comes down to two questions. When it happened and where it happened. Um, in this mm-hmm. case, both of those are kind of contentious, which is bad news for scholars, great news for podcasts. The win is either in the Bronze Age sometime before the end of the second millennium BCE, so somewhere like 1200-ish BCE, or the Iron Age. So it's a matter of whether it was several hundred years before the establishment of the Achaemenid Empire, so when like uh, Cyrus or Kurush established the Persian Empire, and so the Iranians, like the Iranian tribes, then had what's called the Persian ethnogenesis when they became Persian. Um, So was it well before that, or was it at the same time? Um, Most scholars think that it happened um, in the Bronze Age, and those who don't think that it happened in the Bronze Age disagree with that idea because there are names that are mentioned in the Avesta, the the holy book, the the first collection of holy books in Zoroastrianism. There are names of that match up with names in the uh, Achaemenid royal court. So they think that there's this historical connection. There was a period of time um, when um, Soviet archaeologists and historians were like, he's totally fake. He didn't exist at all. But like everyone else is like, nah, like calm down. Like, <laughs> um, and, and, and could this be one of those things where like with the James ostuary, like there are names that coincide because like everyone was named yeah, so, Joseph and Mary. The, and- yeah. So there are, it's less, Everyone was named like it's less that this is like one of the five names that everybody had, but more that these are names that were used. Um, And also some of them aren't direct comparisons. They could be. But uh, the language thing is a really good point because 
a lot of the argument against it being roughly contemporaneous with the establishment of the Achaemenid Empire is that there were um, the words that are the vocabulary that's used in the early Avesta, which I'll get into that in a minute when I read from a book. Uh, but, <laughs> Story time. but the earliest, um, the earliest texts are very different in their composition and their, their language, like sort of structure okay. and vocabulary than the later ones. Um, and mm. the, when the Achaemenid empire came through, like through everywhere, um, it had a really profound impact on things like administration or military terms or, uh, various, uh, and also there are references, well, well, like it was the iron age. They had iron, um, Whereas the early Avesta uses, doesn't use the vocabulary that became commonly used. So it had very archaic language for if had it been in the 6th century BCE. Um, also, they talk about it, they talk about being um, herdsmen and being um, semi-nomadic. And okay. so like, why would so you talk about that? that but yeah, like, why would yeah. you talk about that if like, you are living yeah, yeah like you're not doing that anymore and it's like why don't you talk about having swords and stuff like that that sort of it's it doesn't okay. fit like it doesn't fit linguistically it doesn't fit culturally and so there is a conversation around the material culture of the avesta so like what does the world sound like and the world sounds very different mm. than later um but some people like to think that it's closer to the establishment of the Persian Empire because that makes it more tightly Persian. And there are also people right, that think right. that it and I, I think some of these also fall in that camp of he didn't really exist. But some of them say that um, Zoroastrianism has been around for like 8000 years and it wasn't until it was like the first 5,000 years before, was before we had Zartosht, like the dude. And, and so that, but like, we'll get a sense of why maybe people think that later, but so it's like everywhere from, there's like a good 7,500 year window from like the, like insane theories to the like, oh, okay. um, but most, most scholarship agrees that it happened in the bronze age. Um, okay. And where? Well, this is also broad um, and is often cited as Greater Iran, <laughs> which okay. refers to. Oh, OK, so Greater Iran is is a reference to the geographical regions that at some point or another came under the sway of Iranian empires. OK, so Azerbaijan. So that's like all the Turkey places and, that you listed yeah. as where Zoroastrian is. Yeah, yeah. So because okay. like, remember, well, that's big. Those empires got real big. Real big. Real big. Um, but if we narrow it down a little bit more, we can look to Bronze Age Central Asia. Oh, your fave. My, my fave. Um, so there are two two regions that claim him. And these are Khwarezm. Him? Yeah. Uh, Zoroaster. Okay. Well, we should establish that Zoroaster, we're talking about a dude. Yep. Who of the... Zoroastrianism. Yeah. Yeah. So no, I get that. But so he lived in probably one of two places. And those places are Khwarezm and Sogd. So our Bronze Age listeners um, are probably nodding along, being like, yep, yep, yep. I'm picking up what you're putting down. But 
For those of you listening in the third millennium CE, those two places were, respectively, in what's now Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan, so closest to the Uzbek city of Hiva. So mm-hmm. right there, right there. Um, and and then the other is on kind of the other side of Uzbekistan, the eastern side, in what is now Uzbekistan and Tajikistan. And that's closest to the Uzbek city of Samarkand, which itself is both Uzbek and Tajik and com- composition. So like when, like, fun, fun, not so fun fact, um, when the Soviet Union was dissolving, well, both when it was composing mm-hmm. and then dissolving, um, they... There was a bit of a tussle over whether uh, Samarkand was part of Uzbekistan or part of Tajikistan. And there's Ah. a lot of ethnic Uzbeks and ethnic Tajiks there. And the census, like what the census records were kind of like, Uzbek. And so there's some like discrepancy in in terms of like recorded versus lived experiences. Mm -hmm. So there, it's both. It's very both. So, I'm going to like, I'm going to give you like some hall of famers from these two places. So like later after the Islamic conquest, um, Khwarezm was like a really hot scene for math and science. Um, And most of us met one of its native sons in high school, Al-Khwarezmi. So Khwarezm, Al-Khwarezmi, he's from Khwarezm, Algorithmi. Mm -hmm. I get that. He invented algebra. So the inventor of algebra. And for that, for that, I do not thank him, but I respect him. So you've heard of it. You've, you've heard of Horizon. Have heard. Because you've done algebra. See, it's, it's the same word. I get it. Okay. All right. Well, I don't know. No, that's great. Um, (laughs) As for Sogd or Sogdiana, um, it was smack dab on the Silk Road and it got that good, good, good overland trade tax revenue. Mm. Um, So it was, it was a. It was a place to see and be seen and be sieged. <laughs> um, You're fired. So, <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> no, I'm not. Nope. Uh, among its most famous residents was Roxana. Heard of her. Who was, yeah, um, who was a princess who was married off to Alexander the Great during what he didn't realize at the time was his farewell tour. More wine. Um, <laughs> right. Or bird flu. <laughs> Oh, it <laughs> was the controversy. It was bird flu, <laughs> but maybe some birds fell um, from the sky. Okay, so both of those, both of those places, both Harzim and Sogd, uh, were like pretty happening, well connected places. And whether Zartosht, as his name in mm-hmm. Old Persian is, right. or Zoroaster, uh, Zarathustra in other languages, okay. or Zoroaster, okay. all the same name. I'm getting it now. Uh, yeah, so it's all the same. It's all the same name, just through, just through like the lens of different languages, mm-hmm. and and really, it's like different um, transliterations, so like different alphabets. Um, so whether he received his revelation and spart- started spreading the good news in Hwarzim or in Sogd, it was the right place and the right time to for it to start spreading like wildfire. <laughs> so well, no, they don't know that joke. They don't get that joke yet, but. <laughs> That was foreshad. That was Chekhov's pun. Yeah. Am I fired again? <laughs> <laughs> Remember when I was talking about Tajikistan being like big into Zoroaster? Yeah, yeah. So for their part, they took their claim to him to the next level, that level being UNESCO. Okay. So every year, so every year the UN 
and UNESCO specifically likes to declare things the year of something like this year is the year of indigenous languages. Yeah. I think like a couple years ago, it's like the year of soils. Uh, like it's, it's sort of all over the map. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I mean, and in 2000, are great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in 2003, the 31st session of the UNESCO general conference celebrated quote, the 3000th anniversary of Zoroastrian culture. <laughs> End quote, per a proposal submitted by the president of Tajikistan. <laughs> Happy 3000. What is that? Like you've got paper, you got porcelain. I silver, no, I think how you observe that gold. anniversary is you have a UNESCO. Oh, so 3000th anniversary That's what is you UNESCO. Get. Yeah. You get, okay. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Um, I look forward so to our I UNESCO looked up the proceedings. Podcast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, according to the proceedings from that session, okay. which I read, wow, which is like also, dang, the UNESCO se- like proceedings real boring. Oh. Um, also, it's in like six languages, and so it's like eight hundred pages long. <laughs> mm. But so I've linked it to the show notes, so you can read it. <laughs> but there was there there was a debate, according to the minutes, <laughs> after which. Quote, the commission agreed to a recommendation to change the title of the 3000th anniversary of Zoroastrianism to that of the 3000th anniversary of Zoroastrian culture as originally proposed and to add Uzbekistan to the list of co-originators of the event. such a committee thing. Because like Uzbekistan was just like, guys, come on. (laughs) Okay. So... (laughs) So now that we have a sense of when and where, like when and where, and so maybe now we get to the, the what? when being 3000 years ago, happy, where happy definitely Tajikistan <laughs> and fine <Don't>. Uzbekistan. <laughs> yeah. So um, I'm going to share some of the tenets of early Zoroastrianism. I'm ready. Um, yeah, this is the culture and social institutions of ancient Iran by Dan Damiev and Lukonen, and it's translated by Philip Cole. Okay. Tell me a story. <clears throat> yeah, so <laughs> I'm going to read a couple passages from this because this book is, this was a used as a textbook in a um, graduate course I took, mm-hmm. and it's very good like it's it's a very good um synthetic text so they just uh because it's also translated so not only do you get the synthesis of the um the data and the arguments but you also get that other layer of distance where you have the translator saying this is one that this author agrees with this is one that like Mm. and so it's it's good okay um so i mentioned the avesta you did yep um yep so him The Avesta, the sacred book of the Zoroastrians, is a literary monument of many layers. Like an onion. It's (laughs) Um, with some sumac on it. I'm hungry. (laughs) Its most ancient sections, the Gathas, strongly differ in form and content from the remaining Avesta, being compiled in verse forms and are the hymns of Zoroaster himself. Okay. Moving on. There's a lot of of sources. Okay. Then, Okay. Um, in terms of volume, the largest section of the Avesta is the so-called Younger Avesta. The composition of its nucleus apparently began around 200 years after the death of Zoroaster himself in the last quarter of the 5th century BC. 
Many works of the Younger Avesta literature date from even later Arsacid time. Don't worry about that. Okay. From the time of its emergence, Zoroastrianism, so later, uh, from the time of its emergence, Zoroastrianism experienced a long, complex process of development. Yes, yes, it did. The teaching of Zoroaster himself was reflected in the Gathas, many of which were composed as the replies of Ahura Mazda. So Ahura Mazda is the sun god. Only God. So oh. this is a monotheistic. We, we talked about this a bit in um, the Mithras episode. Mm-hmm. Our last holiday episode. <laughs> Ooh. These are the replies of Ahura Mazda to Zoroaster's questions. Where he's like, dear God, are you there? Hello. It's me. Zoroaster. <laughs> I must increase my bust. <laughs> to begin No, that's. Hello, it's hello God. Are you there? It's me. <laughs> It's the original. <laughs> to begin with, Zoroaster asks his own god as to how he can distinguish the righteous from the unfaithful. This is a big thing for them. Oh, yeah? Um, <laughs> um, a striking and at the same time characteristic answer was given to this question. He who rejects the prophet, i.e. Zoroaster, is himself an adherent of evil. Uh, according to the Gathas, Zoroaster was given a mission from Ahura Mazda to renew religion, and after this, he broke with the ancient beliefs. Yes. He instituted a cardinal religious reform, proclaiming faith in one Ahura Mazda alone, and in his ultimate victory, repudiating some of the tribal deities, known as devas, and placing oh. others lower than Ahura Mazda after transforming them into attributes of the supreme god. Ahura Mazda, who in Greek was Oramas, there's a hyphen midway through. Oramazdes, there we go. According to the teachings of Zoroaster, was the single, almighty, and omnipresent god of good who personified light, life, and truth. Oh. oh. He existed even before the creation of the world and was its creator. But from the very beginning, there had also existed alongside Oramazda the spirit of evil, known as Anra Mainu, Arimanios in Greek who personified darkness and death and together with his assistants the devas created evil ahura mazda was continuously struggling against anra mainu and in this struggle was assisted by his helpers those who personified good thought righteousness and immortality the tri the triad of zoroastrian ethics this is this is asha that thing that you can't really translate into like english or contemporary thought of just like righteousness um, this is all ringing some bells. Yeah, yeah, some bells are being rung. Man was created by Ahura Mazda, but had, done, ha, but had a free choice between good and evil, and hence could be influenced by the spirits of evil. He was obliged to struggle in his thoughts, words, and deeds against Anra Mainu and his helpers, the spirits of evil. Okay. So, yeah. So, um, that's, those are the, the basic tenets of early Zoroastrianism. I can't really, I'm not going to speak to how it may have changed in terms of its belief. Uh, because sort of like, if you think about the time frame, that's like saying that my, the church that I was raised in, in Philippi, West Virginia, was the same as like the congregation of the Philippians to whom <laughs> Paul wrote. Yeah, Paul. It was Paul. Woof. <laughs> it was like, Paul? Paul, he's the yeah. one writing all the letters. Chatty. Um, so the other thing that, um, reminds me a lot of (laughs) growing up is, um, Zoroastrianism is big in eschatology. And so eschatology is the sense of what happens at the furthest reaches. So usually like 
end times. The end of the um, world. Yeah, so like the end of the world Revelation. or, um, yeah, so the revelation of um, St. John at the end of the New Testament is that that's an that's an eschatological treatise. Um, but eschatology can also refer to like like the ends of the Bakhtun in the Mayan calendar. So yeah, so it's when it's at the edge of something, whether okay. it's the edge of like, not necessarily and also, the end. It's just not like the capital E end. No, um, not the Omega. Um, <laughs> so, but, but Zoroastrianism is big into eschatology. Okay. So I'm going to continue reading <laughs> from the culture and social institutions of ancient Iran. This is a much shorter chunk. Okay. I, it's really good, right? I'm enjoying it. It's very, it's very accessible. I've understood everything. It's so much far. more accessible than literally everything else I've read, where I was like, maybe I made a huge mistake. And then I was like, oh, wait, no, this book this book's okay. <laughs> the Zoroastrian priests created a complex eschatology, according to which world history would last 12,000 years. So, uh, whoops, they put a button on this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, the first 3,000 years were the golden age, where there was neither cold nor heat, neither sickness nor death, nor old age. The earth was filled with sheep and cattle. This was the period of Ahura Mazda's dominion. However, the golden age then ended, and Anramanyu created hunger, disease, and death. Bro. But a savior, Salshiant, would... Uh, would appear in the world from the kin of Zoroaster. In the final reckoning, good would prevail in a total victory over evil, and the ideal kingdom would emerge, where Ahura Mazda would rule undividedly in heaven and on earth, the sun would shine eternally, and evil would disappear. Thus, although Zoroaster admits the antagonism between the two principles, he believes in the final victory of Ahura Mazda and worships him alone. So they're basically like, get on board, because... You ain't going to like missing this train. So there's um, th they have ideas of like the, the end of the world coming with the resurrection of the dead, um, the, the future savior, a last judgment um, and those sorts of things, which like people love being like, this is obviously the roots of all monotheistic religions. But. TBD. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, so these Zoroastrian priests. Um, also, you may have heard of the Magi. Um, Three of them? Yeah, but there were actually like way more. Uh, so the Magi um, were a possibly a priest class, possibly just like a straight up class, like a caste. Yeah, yeah. Um, or like a social, you know, social group? yuppies. Oh. Maybe, that, maybe it was like more socioeconomic. Upwardly of just mobile like, priests. <laughs> yeah so um they they weren't they weren't sorcerers they weren't magicians right that's like a that's not that's like not a, a thing don't, don't believe any pop culture that tells you that but so the magi were definitely zoroastrian mm -hmm. but they were sort of separate and also the classical writers were crazy about them they were just like oh my god the magi do this and they do this and did you hear <laughs> and so like <laughs> There's a lot of so, but like Fan the magi, <laughs> yeah. So the magi are are not. It's sort of like a, a magi can be a priest, but not all priests are magi, kind of thing. Oh yeah. Um, Zoroastrian priests, the ones who were out there, like I don't know, a vista thumping about like how you got to get on board. Uh, they were called the Athravan, who were the keepers of the fire, and 
These Zoroastrian keepers of the fire did their fire keeping in, conveniently, fire temples. And as of 2019... And they did it then, but they do it now. Yeah, still, still doing it. Because remember, it's a living it's a living religion. Yeah. Yeah. Still, still keeping that fire. Yeah. So as of 2019, so now, there were 167 fire temples in the world, of which 45 are in Mumbai, 105 are in the rest of India, and 17 are in other countries. And this is from List of Fire Temples. <laughs> yeah. And so a lot of these, so um, up top you mentioned, um, when you mentioned folks in India, these are Parsis. Mm-hmm. So they're so they are at some point in the last several hundred years because they were a religious minority. The previous empires were very much like Islamic kingdoms, mm-hmm. and so they left. Mm-hmm. And so when they they left and they went to the Indian subcontinent, they were called Parsi. So Parsi Persian, same same but different. So that's so when you think like in Mumbai and then the rest of the India, rest of India, a lot of them are in Gujarat, and um, so these are they're still Persian, but they live somewhere else. And the seventeen are in other countries, other countries. That's all. Yeah, yep. This is a note. Just um, I found this and I thought it was interesting. As of twenty eighteen, so there's a a religious custom in India. Speaking of of not allowing Zoroastrian women to enter these fire temples if they marry someone outside of Zoroastrianism. However, this custom has recently been challenged before the Supreme Court of India after a Zoroastrian woman was denied entry into a Zoroastrian institution. So that's ongoing. I just thought it was interesting. Um, Yeah. So now catapulting back into the past on the archaeological identification of fire temples. So this is uh, Remy Boucharla. This is from a, a 2014 paper that he wrote entitled Fire Altars and Fire Temples in the First Millennia BC slash AD in the Iranian World, colon. Some remarks. And so just a pro tip for anybody reading things. If you read, if you, re- if you find a title of something written by somebody who has a very big bibliography spanning many years and the title ends in Some Remarks, mm. You're in for it mm-hmm. because it's basically like, here's how all y'all are wrong. Yep. But not necessarily. I'm I'm not necessarily right, but you're wrong. <laughs> Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> yeah. So um, here's Remy's TED Talk. Generally speaking, fire occupies a prominent place in Zoroastrianism. It has a double function. A- The permanent fire is sacred and should not be extinguished. It should be carefully protected from the sunlight and cannot be in the open air, even within the temple. It is located in a protected area in which the priest takes care of adding fuel. Figure one. (laughs) (laughs) I assume figure one is a cartoon of wind blowing a fire out and then like a smaller room with fire in it and then a thumbs up. Like an Ikea diagram. (laughs) Uh, Continuing. It does not need high flames. Maintaining hot embers is enough. The fire burns in a metal vase, which stands on a small table or pillar. B. Fire is also a medium for bringing prayers towards God, as it is in many religions. It receives libations, water, milk, sprinkled incense, precious wood, etc., Ceremonies are performed on the permanent fire or a fire beside it taken from the main one. 
there are different categories of fire and different places the fire can be. And Bouchard-Law argues that fire altar is a term with too many very specific connotations and a more general term like fire holder or fire stand should be used for archaeological structures associated with this form of worship. So my takeaway basically was any fire is sacred and any space that a permanent fire existed or even a non-permanent fire, but one taken from a permanent fire was a sacred space. Right? I guess. Yeah. Anyway, that's what Remy says. So how do we figure out where the fire temples were? What I gleaned from my very brief immersion into this research is any enclosed building, I guess, because you can't keep a there's fire a, going in the open air. There's that thing about... If if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Yep, that's a that's a saying that exists. It's sort of sort of. Um, well, in this case, it's to a hammer, everything looks like a nail, except when it doesn't. Because in this case, it's you've got an eternal flame in an enclosed building, except for in early Zoroastrianism when it wasn't in an enclosed space. Yeah, so you have this issue with with researchers being like, obviously this was Zoroastrian. Like, obviously there's a fire cult here because there was fire. Because, like, it's not still burning. No, no. <laughs> this was, like, 3,000 years ago. So, like, the you've got, so he's fire. trying to, like, put some, like, parameters on it. No, and I, I can appreciate that, but they, they weren't helpful parameters. <laughs> <laughs> so, again, you're wrong. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, um, I then turned to the webpage of the Zoroastrian Heritage Institute. Um, 3,000 years. Yeah. Mazel tov. Accounts of Herodotus, so around 430 BCE, your friend and mine, and from the earliest archaeological sites discovered so far, suggest that up to the 5th century BCE, Zoroastrians, quote, had no temples nor altars and considered the use of them a sign of folly. And that quote is from Herodotus, not like... <laughs> yeah. Further, Zoroastrian scriptures do not prescribe wor worshipping in a temple and make no mention of Zoroastrian places of worship. Traditionally, Zoroastrians worship individually at home or in the open, facing a source of light. Where, where are you going to put that fire then? When they wished to worship as a community, they did so in open-air gathering areas around a podium where a fire was lit. The gathering areas were on hillsides and hilltops. About 400 to 500 years after Herodotus's observations, by the turn of the millennium, Strabo... His, like, his, like fourth-hand observations. Yeah, like, like people told him no stories. Mistake. Yeah, he didn't go see these happening. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, people told yeah. him what was happening, and he went, okay, scribble, scribble, scribble. So in, by the turn of the millennium, Strabo in the first century CE noted that the Magi of Cappadocia, now in Turkey, ha quote, have pyrethia, firehouses, noteworthy enclosures, and in the midst of these there is an altar on which there is a large quantity of ashes where the Magi keep the fire ever burning. The altar that Strabo refers to is not an altar in the usual sense. He describes it as a fire holder. In ancient times, okay, all right. In ancient times... <laughs> Frequently lighting a new fire would have been difficult. Well, all right. I'll keep quiet. In addition, maintaining a continuous fire in homes would have denuded a fragile environment of trees. Zoroastrian communities, therefore, developed community firehouses that housed an ever-burning flame tended at all hours by firekeepers. Every evening, the firekeeper would carefully cover the fire with its ashes. Oh, he tucked it in so that it would continue smoldering throughout the night while saving fuel, ready to resume when the ashes were removed in the morning. So he banked the fire. When needed, householders would come and light their house fires from the central community fire. The firehouses were central to and a vital part of each community. Firekeeping was a profession supported by the community. 
So they had like chariots with bumper stickers like my son is proud parent of a firekeeper. Yeah. <laughs> These firehouses came to be known in Iran as uh, Chahartaki, meaning four directions. Greater Iran. In, in greater Iran, more than Iran, outside of Iran. Because Iran didn't exist yet. Iran and environs. Environs. Ew. So so they were known as as Chahartaki, meaning four directions. The walls and openings faced the four cardinal directions. The alignment of the walls or pillars of the firehouses with the solar-based cardinal points has led some to believe that the firehouses or temples served an additional function, that of using the position of the sun at sunrise, noon meridian, and sunset to determine seasons and significant days of the year. Like that one we're talking about right now. Right now. So meta. Zoroastrians mark these days with festivals like the one we're talking about right now. And they were particularly <laughs> important for farmers in determining sowing times and for livestock owners as well. The Chahartaki design continued to be used for fire temples during the Sasanian era until about 650 CE. So I'll get to that particular era in a moment. The oldest remains of what has been identified as a fire temple are those on Mount Khaja near Lake Hamun in the Iranian province of Sistan. Only traces of the foundation and ground plan survive and have been tentatively dated to the 3rd or 4th century BCE. The temple was rebuilt during the Parthian era, so around 250 BCE to 226 CE, and enlarged during Sassanid times, 226 to 650 CE. So the Sassanid or Sasanian period was the last Persian dynasty slash kingdom before the rise of Islam and was named after the House of Sasan. It is consider considered to be one of Iran's most influential historical periods. The characteristic feature of the Sassanid fire temple was its domed sanctuary where the fire altar stood. So a dome, that's distinctive and helpful. Uh, less distinctive and helpful than you might think if you're trying to take an exam on which one it is. Mm. Well, fortunately for me, <laughs> I don't. Okay. Just, I'm just I mean, saying. Thank you. Thank you for the, the heads up. <laughs> Um, this sanctuary always had a square ground plan with a pillar in each corner that then supported the dome. Archaeological remains and literary evidence suggest that the sanctuary was surrounded by a passageway on all four sides because like you might want to walk around it. Ruins of temples of the Sassanid area have been found in various parts of the former empire, greater Iran, mostly in the southwest. Uh, but the biggest and most impressive are those of Adargushnasp in Media Minor. Um, and many more ruins are popularly identified as the remains of Zoroastrian fire temples, even when their purpose is of evidently secular nature. Or I.e. a barbecue. Yeah. But like a sacred barbecue, though? No, just like a straight up barbecue. <laughs> no, I don't. Um, <laughs> or are the remains of a temple of the shrine cult or as is the case of a fort-like fire temple and monastery at Sukhani, Azerbaijan, that unambiguously belongs to another religion. But it's a fire temple! I mean, there's all this sort of mm, generalization of, of Zoroastrianism, sort of, as like, fire worship! Um, that's not totally accurate. Because no. remember, they worship Ahura Mazda. Right, so it's a belief that elements are sort of pure representations of things, and fire represents the light and wisdom of Ahura Mazda. So... It's not that they're worshiping fire, but it's like a conduit of of veneration. Yeah, like it. It's like a purifying thing, and it mm -hmm. and it lifts, like as we said, like your prayers, prayers to God, yeah. and also like a really good example of how other elements were sacred is uh, the 
the sky burial and the idea yeah. of you have clean bones. And so they used they used ossuaries. They used bone boxes for burial um, because they didn't want to uh, defile the earth. But you want to keep the bones because like, a- when Big G rolls back around and it's like, get up. Time to get up. Wake up. Time to get up. You, so you that's have your so bones. that's that's part of that. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, you gotta gotta get those bones. Gotta get them. Um, and so that's that's. But nobody says that they're like dirt worshippers because they. I think our fans might say that a little bit. Ah, oh, nice. <laughs> um, but but yeah. So it's it's not really. Eh, no, not so accurate. But again, if you are out there looking for evidence of Zoroastrians look for fire and you see this thing that looked like it was on fire once you're like found one and they're like sir that's a barbecue (laughs) (laughs) yeah Mm. okay well let's kind of jump forward in time a little bit and take a look at part of the progression of Zoroastrianism's influence on the western world because uh it's it's really pretty pervasive um and I found a great article that, that really expressed a lot of this very well um, from the BBC, and it's called The Obscure Religion That Shaped the West. Okay, yeah, let's let's put a pin in that use of the word obscure, but the, the author's uh, name... That's... The author's was... name is Jubin Bekrad. Um, are, is, is it ob- as obscure as Pawpaws, though? Is it? Oh! <laughs> oh, she mad. Okay, so, centuries before Dante's Divine Comedy... Heard of it. The book of Ardaviraf described in vivid detail a journey to heaven and hell. Could Dante have possibly heard about the cosmic Zoroastrian traveler's report, which assumed its final form, its final Pokemon form, around the 10th century CE? We don't know. This is, remember, the. this is all part of that, that younger. This is like the, I don't know, like the extended. Director's cut. The, the ECU of. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, okay. So we don't know about Dante, but we can speculate. Um, and indeed, people have. The 18th century writer Voltaire, though, was certainly enamored of Zoroastrianism, so much so that he had a special, like, Zoroastrian nickname. Like, people, his followers and his, like, his oh. sycophants called him Sadi. Dumb. I, okay. Well, that's dumb. Well, he's dead, so it's fine. Uh, well, also, this is part of the Enlightenment. Yeah, like, I know. After the Enlightenment, everybody got like really into Zoroastrianism. Yeah. So his work, Zadig, tells the tale of its eponymous Persian Zoroastrian hero who, after a series of trials and tribulations, ultimately weds a Babylonian princess, which is what we all want. Although flippant at times and not rooted in history, Voltaire's philosophical tale sprouted from a genuine interest in Iran, also shared by other leaders of the European Enlightenment period. In the same spirit, Goethe's West-East Divan, dedicated to the Persian poet Hafez, featured a Zoroastrian-themed chapter, while Thomas More lamented the fate of Iran's Zoroastrians in his work Lala Ruch. Enlightenment. Um, it wasn't only in Western art and literature, though, that Zoroastrianism made its mark. Indeed, the ancient faith also made a number of musical appearances on the European stage. Hmm. In addition to the priestly character Zarastro, uh, the libretto of Mozart's opera The Magic Flute is laden with Zoroastrian themes such as light versus darkness, trials by fire and water, a man who can talk to birds. No, not that one. Okay. And the pursuit of wisdom and goodness 
above all else. And, of course, the late Farouk Bulsara, a.k.a. Freddie Mercury, was intensely proud of his Parsi Zoroastrian heritage. He once remarked in an interview, I'll always walk around like a Persian popinjay, and no one's going to stop me, honey. But, like, he can say that because he's Freddie Mercury. I love him. Maybe that'll come up in the sequel. To the movie? There's a sequel. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> in, it's in the works. When it comes to music, though, perhaps no single example best reflects the influence of Zoroastrianism's legacy than Richard Strauss's Thus Spoke Zarathustra, which famously provided the booming backbone to much of Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. The score owes its inspiration to Nietzsche's magnum opus of the same name, which follows a prophet named Zarathustra, although many of the ideas Nietzsche proposes are, in fact, anti-Zoroastrian. The German philosopher totally rejects the dichotomy of good and evil that Zoroastrianism rests on. Uh, he was an avowed atheist, and he had zero use for monotheism. So, Yeah, Nietzsche really had a bad, bad deal. Because like a raw deal, because also um, his idea of the, like he like his idea of the Ubermensch yeah. um, was co-opted by I think it was his sister who was a Nazi. Um, and so it was it was oh, no. posthumous. So he wasn't a Nazi, but his, but his sister, sister took whomever, was like, hey, guys. And and so, um, yeah. Yeah. So Yikes. speaking speaking of nazis yeah yeah um, uh let's just make this worse <laughs> there's um there is another reason why um uh, some people specifically previous previous generations of archaeologists were a bonkers for ancient fire worship and wanted to see it and that reason is arians yeah. and like a little a little peek behind the curtain i mentioned arians like no fewer than four times in my notes for this and like and then I was like, I had this, I typed a Comment? rhetorical question, oh. like, why are people so, so hot for fire worship? And like, Anna took this other turn and I was like, the answer was Arians. <laughs> but I didn't know it was a rhetorical question. I thought you were actually so you, asking me to complete this research. I was under a lot of pressure. Well, yeah, but the answer, the answer was Arians, um, which like, I, you know, people are understandably often think like blonde hair, blue eyes, kind of like. Arian, but I'm talking about the original idea of of Arian. So like the like the linguistic connection between Arian and Iran. Um, Yeah. So there is a theory, which is really the best way to start a sentence that makes my shoulders seize up. But there is a theory that prior to Zarathustra, the ancient Persians worshipped the deities of the old Irano-Aryan religion. And so it's sort of the counterpart to the Indo-Aryan religion that would eventually become known as Hinduism. So, like, remember when Zoroaster is like, all y'all divas need to get out of here because Ahura Mazda is the only one. And so that's this sort of idea. And so it's also why some people think that like the idea has been around for about 8,000 years because this will come up to a much greater degree at some undefined point in the future in our episode on the Indus Valley and Harappa. Yes. The other place where people are like really like itching to find some Aryans. And I also think that the proto-Indian-Iranian question would be a perfect deep cut for us to sink our teeth into. Because um, so remember last week... <laughs> 
Do you remember in the Lady Statues episode when I was talking about like Orsprache and like Or Religion, like the yeah. idea mm-hmm. of like looking for the like matriarchal religion? I do remember. Um, so this is a similar line of thinking where researchers have spent much time and spilled much ink debating the absolute earliest version of something like language, religion, or culture. Who really invented these things? Um, sometimes they think they have the answer and then they go look for evidence for it, which is what we call confirmation bias. Mm. Um, But as we've told our listeners many times and we don't intend to stop anytime soon, that's not how things work. They don't. And so the, a really good illustration of this, which upon further like review, I realized that like maybe I'm the only person on earth that liked this movie. Um, But there is a novella that was written by Mircea Iliade, who was a Romanian writer um, and philosopher. He wrote The Myth of Eternal Return. And so he wrote this the, this set of ideas about how myth is cyclical and it has a root. Mm-hmm. And so he's looking kind of for Ragnarok. Coincidentally, uh, Mircea Iliade was a Nazi. Oh, bummer. But he was Romanian, so he, like, meant it. So he had some unsavory views. But he has this novella called Youth Without Youth, which was um, adapted into a film by Francis Ford Coppola. And I loved it. But then I, like, went to Rotten Tomatoes, and everyone's like, this movie sucks. But it's this idea of a guy who gets electrocuted, and then he's able to, like, access, like... He gets struck by lightning. Oh. He's like out in the street and he gets struck by lightning. Okay. He's a he's a an orientalist in like the original sense of like he knows lots of Eastern languages. Okay. And so in this sort of dreamlike state, maybe this is why people didn't like the movie, because it didn't make a lot of sense. But it's like sort of works back further and further and further to like through languages and through like these ideas, and he finds this the root root okay. of everything. But but that's that's something that I will revisit it before we do that, because th- before we do that deep cut, because um, I think it actually is a helpful illustration. Ooh. And it also kind of hits at the like sort of the appeal. What if because we did, there is a certain appeal to it? What yes. if we did a like a Facebook live watch along because you can have viewing parties on Facebook. And so I already watch you about you <laughs> <laughs> or something. We could totally do that. Anyway, that's that's an idea. OK, to, we'll put a pin in that. Yeah. But maybe maybe someone's out there. If you have seen it and like it, let me know. Do you talk to Amber? Don't talk to me. The Dirt Podcast at gmail.com. Finally, at the end of that sort of time progression, if you're interested in what Zoroastrianism looks like today, at least in one particular place, you can take a tour of a New York Zoroastrian temple, courtesy of the Huffington Post. And we will have that link on our show notes. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we were talking about bells being rung earlier. Ding a ling gonna start singing ring my bell (laughs) (laughs) don't uh we don't have the um so can't pay for that i know we don't we don't have the rights um or the technical ability so we talked about how there were certain elements that we were describing that sound a lot like elements of christianity and christianity (laughs) yeah (laughs) christianity and islam um and um, and so I don't, I'm not going we, we to rehash that, but yeah. yeah, but there's sort of the, this, but it's very much this mingling of ideas on the Silk Road. They're kind of mutually informative. Um, and we talked about this a bit more in Manichaeism. Mm. Um, and that was the one that like really pushed that sense of duality yeah. and that sense of okay. dualism, like the, the good the evil tension between good and evil, the 
truth and the lie. So the Persian kings, like the Achaemenid kings, weren't good. If they were Zoroastrian, they weren't good Zoroastrians. Like they weren't. I bet they lit a lot of things on fire. Yeah. But I mean, either they had um, like a like a more syncretic approach where they were pulling other things in. But they're definitely like one of the like major inscriptions, like the big monumental inscriptions is like, I did this for Ahura Mazda and the other gods who exist. Uh Uh-oh. And it's like, Uh (laughs) uh-oh. That's (laughs) now wait a minute. (laughs) Little slip there. But but they talk about the the truth and the lie, but they talk about it in a political sense. So they're sort of motivated to vanquish the lie and the lie is like illegitimate kings so it's it's less spiritual and more political yeah something that doesn't get mentioned as much when people talk about like impacts on other religions is the effect that zoroastrianism in theory had on judaism because cyrus the great the the founder of the Achaemenid empire mm-hmm. um had a pretty big impact on judaism especially the people who practiced it through the edict recorded on the cyrus cylinder which i've seen in front of my face that's very exciting you can watch the khan academy video that that i'll have in the show notes but the cyrus cylinder is known popularly as the world's first declaration of human rights Ah. um and so what he writes on it is he he is motivated by this concept of asha this concept of doing what is right okay and so he was like y'all do you i know you've been in exile in babylon for a while but go home Wow. Go home, Jews. All right, and so Cyrus. Cyrus. Nice. So the Cyrus Cylinder, and I guess by extension, Zoroastrianism, is the reason why the Jews went out of exile, went back to Jerusalem, and established the Second Temple, the one that the Romans burnt down. Too soon. <laughs> also, I was working at the Asian Art Museum when the Cyrus Cylinder was there, and this kid that was working with me, like, straight up asked, so why does everybody care about this so much? <laughs> Which, like, oof. Um, Like, in what direction, kid, would you like me to answer this? Yeah, and so I told him, and I will tell you now, that the Cyrus Cylinder is significant not only because of its affiliation to the guy thought to be the father of Persian-ness. Right, so so like Persian Persian communities. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Persians are into it. But also, many people who observe Judaism are also pretty big into it. I'm into it now. Yeah, the Jews were freed from exile in Babylon and were permitted to go home. Like so that nice. was a big time for them. So sort of, yeah. So that's Things something that, off. yeah. And I so um, Zoroastrianism spread because there was a, a an empire that practiced mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. That's usually pretty effective. But then the decline of Zoroastrianism was pretty swift after the arrival of Islam, both because the caliphate was pretty good militarily and it behooved one. Like we talked about this before, like there are sort of there are financial aspects and sort of administrative aspects that make it easier if you are if you are Muslim. But also Islam was really popular among poor people because the idea behind Islam is that like everyone is equal in the eyes of God. There's like nothing in the way. Whereas in Zoroastrianism, you've got, you know, priests and classes and it's very stratified and people who don't who aren't doing so great prefer the thing that isn't like hey, equalizing you suck. Yeah, yeah 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 um also zoroastrianism is hard I, it's like even reading about it a little bit is hard yeah yeah and so like islam is like hey we've got these like got a handful of pillars do this stuff it's just you you and the big guy 
That's it. And Zoroastrianism is like, and then there will be 3,000 years, and then there will be 3,000 years, and then there's evil and good, but it's actually way more nuanced than that. And also, there's these magi, but they're not the fire keepers, and also fire, but not fire. Got it? Nope. It, so it, it kind of went to the wayside, and there was, you know, persecution. Right. Um, but... But contemporary, but Zoroastrianism is still practiced, yeah. and it became a bit more popular in Iran post-revolution, so very recently, as a sort of means of does it, resistance. Does it have to do with sort, sort of, of reconnecting with Persianness? No, I would say it has more to do with um, getting further from the Islamic state. Okay, not 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 that one. The like I, yeah I, the the rule of law yeah, yeah. being informed by Islam and this idea because um, so the revolution was a movement away from Western influence and exploitation mm-hmm. as as the revolution so it, that was so they moved toward religion to get away from the secular because the secular was seen as as being like Western capitalist and like sort of exploitative. And so some folks are try try to move away from what they see as a, a, a oppression from a different angle. And so an alternative is Zoroastrianism. Okay. Yeah. So that's, and now we're back. We're back to now. Yeah. That was cool. I learned a lot. Wasn't this fun? Yeah. And Happy No Roos. Happy No Roos. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. And we will be back in your ears soon. You can put us there via SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or the podcast platform of your choosing. And you can follow us on Facebook at The Dirt Podcast. Um, On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. On Instagram, we are at The Dirt Pod, if Instagram ever starts working again. I know. It's a little bit broken. But we'll, we'll get stuff back up there. And you can see all of that smushed together on our beautiful website, thedirtpod.com. And if you have thoughts about Zoroastrianism or your own personal experiences, or you just want to contact us. Or the later work of Francis Ford Coppola. <laughs> yeah, or that. Uh, you can email us, or if it's Francis Ford Coppola specifically, address your email to Amber at thedirtpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, everybody. We love you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at arpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.